are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Our time together this new year, listening to God. Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful. And what we just sang is true that you are holy, you are worthy of all the glory. And we offer that to you this morning, God. I pray as we turn our attention to your word, as we listen to what you have to say to us, God, would you speak to us clearly in and through the pages of scripture. By the power of your spirit, would you press on our hearts. Where we need to be encouraged, God, would you remind us of how deeply loved we are in Christ. And where we need to be challenged, God, would you remind us how deeply loved we are in Christ. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Well, good morning, church. Happy New Year, good to see you. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter four. And if you're thinking, wait, you just read Colossians one, I know. We're gonna start in Matthew four. We're gonna eventually get to Colossians one. Also, a couple of comments to make. I was talking to some people right before this service started and they were going to brunch. And then you know what they were gonna do? Whatever they wanted, you know why? because they came at eight o'clock. And if you came to eight, you would know, not only that would be true, but there would be a lot more space for you uh, and for the others who are coming in. Do with that what you want, okay? (laughs) Eight o'clock, we meet every week. Um, uh, Some exciting news to update you on. Last February at our family meeting, we began the process of receiving nominations from you for the role in the office of governing elder here at CBC. And so we got that list of names and we spent the next several months uh, having conversations with them and with their families and with uh, their community about them. And again, walked through that process. In the fall family meeting, we nominated two of those men from, or we presented rather two of those men to you. Um, both uh, John Chittister and Tom Morris. Should be a picture of them on the screen. And from that point, from our fall family meeting in September, after we presented them to you, we, we felt confident that both of those guys were both qualified and called to serve in this role. And yet we didn't affirm them at that point because then we put it back on the congregation to say, if there's anything that you know about them that we don't know, that we weren't able to find, please let us know. And what we meant is there any reason that either of these two men are not biblically qualified according to 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. Um, uh, And so we did that. And that I wanted to let you know this morning that that window of opportunity closed. And so those men at that point were affirmed by you, the congregation, and by our elders to serve in that role. 
They've been in meetings uh, alongside the rest of our governing elders for the last six weeks or so. Uh, we are actually going to publicly ordain them, which will start their five-year term of elder. That's what our bylaws say, how long elders would serve. Um, we're going to publicly ordain them in our family meeting that Will mentioned earlier on February 4th, and we hope that you will join us for that, not just for that part of it, because it's a special and meaningful time for us uh, as a church. All right, hopefully you are at Matthew 4. We're going to start in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when he heard that John, that's he, that's Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and the Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, in the shadow of death, on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you were with us a couple weeks ago on Christmas Eve, or if you were with us at all during our Advent series, what we just read should sound familiar, because Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, which is a messianic prophecy, and what he's doing there is he's saying not that Jesus is the fulfillment. Matthew's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment, not just of the prophecy in Isaiah 9, but in all of the Old Testament promises that one is coming who would crush the head of the serpent, who would bless the whole earth through Abraham, who would be a king forever through David. There's one coming, a Messiah, who would redeem and restore the people of God back to him. And Matthew says, Jesus is him. Jesus is who he's talking about. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. If you've ever had kids, you know that oftentimes as kids are learning to talk, um, they don't always say things the way that you're teaching them to say it, right? They begin to kind of form and create their own language. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. It's not English, okay? Um, if you've ever been sitting down with someone, or maybe you've had this experience, you know, there's a 12 to 24-month window where they just are trying to figure it out. So maybe you're sitting down, you're having a cup of coffee with a friend, this toddler comes up and just speaks absolute gibberish, okay? You have no clue what they've just said, and yet their mom, without breaking conversation, will get up and she'll go to the pantry and she'll grab some goldfish and she'll bring it back, and you're going, what just happened? And she says, well, that's how he says he's hungry, right? Or something like that. Um, you just don't know. It can be frustrating uh, as you're trying to figure this out with your kid and you're learning this, but it also can be cute, okay? Here's an example. My daughter, Josie, she's about to be four, so she's three years old, and she has always said, uh, instead of saying blanket, she says bamp it. Now, if you know her, which some of you do, she could have a conversation with a 30-year-old, okay? I mean, she can say anything, talk to anybody, and she can say the word blanket, but still, for whatever reason, she says bamp it, and it's cute, and it happened a couple days ago, and my wife said to me, she goes, I'm gonna be really sad when she doesn't say it that way anymore, um, and maybe it will be sad. Uh, Zeke, our oldest, he just turned eight years old, and instead of saying water for the first two years, for whatever reason, he said Woggy. Why? I don't know. I never taught him that. I can promise you, right? He just says Woggy. Um, 
And here's the thing, it was kind of sad when he stopped saying it that way, but it's, that's necessary, right? It's, it's necessary for us to, to grow and mature as we get older, because what would happen if Zeke sits down to his first job interview and they're like, sir, can we get you anything to drink? And he says, yeah, I would love a glass of Woggy, please, <laughs> right? Growth and maturity is necessary. And here's the point in all that, our words matter. Our words matter, and not just knowing how to say them, but also knowing what they mean. Because I think in the Christian life, we struggle in a similar way, but it's not that we don't know how to say the words. In fact, we're really good at saying the words, it's just that we don't know all the time what those words mean. And I'm not talking about big theological words that are hard to pronounce, right? I'm talking about common words that are essential to understanding Christianity and what it means to follow Jesus. And so as we kick off the year, we're starting a three-week series where we're gonna spend some time with one of those words, and it's the word discipleship. And our hope in this three-week series is that we could offer some common language around what discipleship is so that whenever you hear that word from the pulpit or in a community group or at a, over a dinner table with a friend, that you know what it means and you're not left wondering, what's Woggy, right? This is why we wanna help you in this. Here's how we're defining it, discipleship is the lifelong pursuit of following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and living on mission with Jesus. Discipleship is the lifelong pursuit of following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and living on mission with Jesus. And that is our outline for this three-week series. For the rest of our time this morning, we're gonna talk about what does it mean to follow Jesus. We just read in Matthew 4 that one of the first things that Jesus does as he begins his ministry is that he calls people to follow him, to become his disciples, right? If your Bible's like mine, you look at it, there's a subheading, which aren't inerrant, inspired words of God, but they're helpful. The subheading says, Jesus calls the first disciples. This word disciple, it's from a Greek word that means to learn, but when you read Matthew 4, you understand that this is, this is more than just acquiring knowledge, this is more than just being a learner. It's more than just gaining information, right? And you see this in Matthew 4, the invitation to follow, it carries with it the idea of relationship and nearness. And what I want you to see here is that a disciple is not a subset of Christian, okay? Disciple is not uh, someone who's really serious about following Jesus. The Bible never offers us a category for casual Christianity. A disciple is the only description of a follower of Jesus, it's what Christians were called before we were called Christians. And so I want you to think about this. Don't answer out loud, but I want you to think about this. How does discipleship start? How does discipleship start? Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There's two things that I want you to see this morning about how discipleship starts. The first one is that discipleship starts with an invitation from Jesus. An invitation from Jesus. Of the five guys mentioned in this passage of scripture, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Jesus, four of them are going about their day. They're just doing their thing. And one of them sees the others, moves toward them, and then offers them an invitation. Who is it? Jesus. John 15, verse 16 says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And so discipleship starts with an invitation from Jesus to do what? Follow him. An invitation to follow him. It's an invitation not just to learn, 
And not just to do, it's an invitation to be near, to, to actually have a relationship with God himself, the one who Colossians 1 says is the image of the invisible God, the one who created all things, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Church, he has seen you and he has moved toward you and he has offered you an invitation to live your life, not just for him, but with him. Discipleship starts with an invitation from Jesus. Here's the second thing. It also starts with the promise of a new identity, a new identity. In verse 19, when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, this is the language of identity. He's not talking about, I'm gonna give you a new career. He says, I'm gonna make you into something different. This is language of identity. And Luke actually gives us more detail about this interaction. It'll be on the screen, but if you wanna turn to Luke 5, you can. Luke chapter five, again, he gives us a little more detail on this interaction. Luke five, verse one. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake and he saw two boats, but the fishermen had gone out of them and they were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Uh, just think with me for a second about what that would have been like for Peter. Um, I've never been fishing for a whole night. I've been fishing before, but I could imagine that as a fisherman, if you were fishing all night, and how much did it say they caught? Nothing. He's frustrated, okay? He's tired, he's hungry. Um, and if he's anything like me, when life's not going the way you want to, he's over there cleaning his nets. And if he's anything like me, like I said, you're, you're cleaning your net and you're just questioning everything about your life. You go, what am I doing? You know, like you ever get to that spot where you go, why am I doing this? Nothing's working. We didn't catch any fish. I'm washing the nets. It's the worst part of going fishing is bringing the boat back in and cleaning it up and everything. Um, so, uh, and then Jesus, while he's doing that, frustrated, asking all these questions, this rabbi gets into a boat, in his boat. And I'm sure he's like, bro, what are you doing? You know? But he allows it, right, because apparently this guy has a following and there's some popularity around him. And then Jesus has the audacity to say, actually, let's go fishing again. And he's like, I've been through this, all right? But he says, verse five, master, we toiled all night, took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed or caught a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, I will make you, or from now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought the boats to land, they left everything and followed him. As I've been reading this the past few weeks, those three words have just kind of rung in my ears. They left everything. They had literally just had the best moment in their career, right, of fishing. Right after probably the worst, at least one of the worst. Again, they're frustrated, they're discontent, right? Can you imagine fishing all night? Probably wouldn't be hard in that moment to convince them to give up the whole fishing thing. And then you fast forward a couple of hours, they catch more fish than they had ever seen to the point that not only your boat is sinking, but another boat is sinking. And verse 11 says, when they brought the boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. 
which means they leave behind not only their boats and all the fish that they had just caught, but their lives as they knew it. They leave behind their lives as they knew it. Why, because fishing is bad? No. It's because they had clearly seen that the identity and that the life that was offered to them in Christ was far superior than the life that they could create for themselves. Discipleship starts with an invitation from Jesus to live their lives with him and this nearness to Jesus, this relationship with him gives us a new identity. Let me ask you this church, what is our identity in Christ? Think about it. What is our identity in Christ? There's a lot of ways that you can answer that from the scriptures. You could say we're forgiven. You could say we're saved. You could say we're qualified. I think one of the best that encapsulates our identity in Christ and all those other true and right things flow out of is what we see in Galatians 2.20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is our identity in Christ? That we are beloved sons and daughters of God through faith. Through faith in Christ, we are beloved sons and daughters of God. This is what it means to be a Christian, that we are invited by Jesus into a relationship with him and we are given a new identity as sons and daughters who are loved by God in Christ. Faith in the reality that Christ lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He paid the penalty for our sin in full. And on the third day, he rose again forever securing for us victory over sin and death. And as a result, you and I, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are no longer defined by our sin and our shame. We are defined by who God says we are. The banner over our lives from the moment we put our faith in Christ is Christ in my place and me in his. This is what it means to be a Christian. And let me ask you this. What do we contribute to that new identity? What do we bring to the table so that God would offer us his son, his for covenant love forever and a new identity as belonging to him forever? What do we contribute? Say it out loud. Nothing. We are like Peter on the lakeshore, tired, hungry, frustrated, questions swirling, doing our best to mend these nets, to make something out of the mess of our lives and find the strength to do it all again another day, to try to make something out of who we are and what we are invited into when Jesus calls us to discipleship as he offers us the identity of sonship, of belonging to him as beloved children. And church, many of you are here this morning because you have believed that. Praise God. Many of you have believed that. Let me ask you this. Do you always believe it? Do you always believe that what's true about you is you've been invited, you have been invited by the God of the universe to come and actually live a life not just for him but with him and that he has forever placed his covenant love on you and given you this identity of belonging to him as a child? Do you believe it all, all the time? When is it most difficult to believe when is it hardest for you in your life to believe that that's true about you? I think it's when we feel like we are most undeserving of it, which shows that we never understood the invitation in the first place. But it's when we think we're most undeserving of it. It's, it's the big failures in your lives, the moment in your life when you give in to that temptation that you swore you would never do again. 
And what happens? You're just overwhelmed with guilt and shame. Big moments of your life and you feel like you have to run and hide and distance yourself from God until you can do enough good things to come back to him. Or, and it's those big moments in our lives when we think we don't deserve it. It's also the small moments in your life. You know that nagging thing in your head that just says, my life is not what I thought it would be. God must not love me, right? It's those moments we think we don't deserve it. Uh, over the break, I was out in the yard at some point when I throw something away in the trash can. And when I came back in, my wife was visibly upset. And she was sad, and I could tell. And so I went over and asked her, hey, what's going on? And she said that one of our children, I'm not gonna indict them publicly, but one of our children had uh, done something that was not just, that they didn't, shouldn't have done, but was actually really rude and incredibly disrespectful to them. And it like, she handled it and they went off, you know, and, and, uh, but it just left this like sadness in her. And so the way that I'm wired, you know what I did? When I hear this, I gotta go find them. Okay, that's the way God's wired me, just in case you're wondering. I gotta go find them. I gotta rectify this situation. Go, Who is it? What have you done? And what are you gonna do about it? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and I started to go do that. And this is actually really difficult to say. Um, but my wife stopped me and she said, hey, that's not why I'm sad. She said, I'm sad because the first thing that came to mind when they did that to me was, you sound like your dad. Um, and this isn't me... That, that was God's kindness to me through my wife. This isn't me ripping on her, okay? That, he, that he would, she would be honest enough with me to say that, right? Because that's how I talk to them a lot of the time. And so that's how they begin to talk to their mom. And, and you know what I didn't feel in that moment? Love by God. I didn't feel like God had invited me in, that I belonged to him as a son. You know what I felt? Shame. I, the thought in my mind was not God loves me, but I am an awful father. And I am nothing like the man that, that I wanna be and, the, and the, the God that I say that I believe in, right? Um, I share that with you because that's the lie of the enemy. Not that I'm not perfect because I'm not. Not that I'm not gonna make mistakes, but the lie of the enemy is in that moment it's the same lie he told in the garden. Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're enjoying not only one another and the work that God's given them to do, but they're enjoying perfect, uninterrupted communion with God. And then the enemy slithers in. And what's he say? About oh, that tree over there. That tree looks pretty good, doesn't it? Well, yeah, well, God says we shouldn't eat it. Well, why would he say that? Why would he keep that from you? It looks good to me. Well, he said that if we eat it, we would die. You won't die. Actually, if you eat it, you'll live your eyes will be opened and actually you will be like God. The false promise of sin is that life is better without God. And it's an invitation to reject who God says we are and to make a life for ourselves. It's, an, it, it, it's a false lie of sin is that life is better without God. And when we give in to that lie, we respond the same way Adam and Eve did. How do they respond? They hide from God. And what do they do? They cover themselves. And that's what I feel like I didn't do. In that moment when I feel you're an awful, awful, well, terrible father, let's go to that one. Um, I don't feel like I can run to God. What I feel like is I have to go and clean that up. I have to go and, and, and fix this situation to then bring it back to God and go, look, I know I'm not perfect, but I've done all these good things. Which again shows that we don't understand the invitation in the first place. And for them it was fig leaves, that they ran to for us, it's whatever you 
run to for comfort, whatever you run to, uh, to do to, to gain the approval of the people around you and to, to get their applause, whatever you run to for power or control. Oftentimes what we run to for identity is what we go to before we were Christians. If you came to faith later in life or it's kind of the natural thing you go to. This is what the disciples do. In John 21, after Jesus dies and before he appears to Peter and Andrew and James and John, you know where he finds them? Fishing. They go back to fishing. And again, this isn't about fishing. This is about they go back to the identity that they could make for themselves. They say, well, Jesus must not be all that he was, said he was. He must not be able to offer us this new identity. And so we go back to what we had. Look at this. John 21. After this which is, this is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. He reveals himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Look at verse three. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. That sound familiar? Again, this is not about catching fish, church. This is about the emptiness of chasing and pursuing a life apart from Christ. It never satisfies. Verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And this isn't Jesus taunting them. This isn't, uh, again, he's moving toward them. This is a loving invitation. Do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from land. Jesus, if you know the rest of the story, he invites them to share a meal. So they're fishing, he goes, no, 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 I got a better identity for you. And they betray him and reject him and rebel against him and the resurrected Jesus again sees them moves toward them and invites them in again to a life with him. It's not about fishing. It's about the emptiness of pursuing a life apart from Christ and Jesus lovingly restores Peter. Peter, you know, gets ready, throws himself in the boat, goes and finds Jesus and then again, because he, he wants to be near but he's, he's filled with guilt and shame because he had just denied Jesus three times and what's Jesus do? He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He gives him an opportunity to restore him back. We have believed this, that we've been invited by God into a relationship with Jesus, not because of anything we do, but because of everything he's done and we're given this new identity. We have believed it, but we don't always believe it. And church, following Jesus is a lifetime of learning that the identity that Jesus offers is far better than anything we could create for ourselves. And it's a lifetime of learning how to live out of that identity. You gotta learn to live out of that identity. It's received, not achieved. And so we learn to live out of that identity that we didn't do anything to earn God's love in the first place. And so our life for God is not to keep his love. He gives it, he invites us, live a life with him. The only way to live a life for God is to live with him. We live out of that identity that Jesus chose us. And as a result, when we fail, when you fail, when I fail, we don't have to be perfect, you know that. We don't have to pretend we're perfect. When we fail, we don't have to distance ourselves from God and try to cover ourselves with whatever we can come up with. We get to go to him 
in the, the feeling and the thought and the accusation against the, in my heart against me that when I hear, you're a horrible father, I don't have to go, look, I'm gonna prove that I'm not. I get to go, I know. And God has welcomed me in and so I get to grow from this place. Jesus meets you where you are in order to make you into who he wants you to be. Let me show you this briefly in Colossians 1. You can flip over there. It'll be on the screen. Colossians 1, verse 21 says this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. These, these verses describe what the gospel does in the life of a Christian. And there are two primary movements here. Jesus meets you where you are, an invitation to make you into who God wants you to be, identity. And Paul starts by describing what life looks like apart from Jesus. In verse 21, he describes it three ways. He says, you're alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The word alienated, it means estranged. But in this context, it means to be shut out of fellowship, to be cut off. And he says, you're hostile in mind, which means everything you think is, is in opposition to God. But it's not just what you think, it's actually deeper than that. It's the things that motivate you to think those things and do the things that you do. It's holistic, we're complete enemies of God because of our alienation from him and this leads Paul to say we do evil deeds. This is the mess of our lives. Because of sin, we're completely separated from God. Our position of separation from him leads us to being enemies from him and he says this in verse 22, but he, Jesus, has now reconciled you. This word reconciled, it means to be brought back. And I mention that because it doesn't just mean that because of what Christ has done for you, you have been forgiven of your sins. Now, it does mean that, and that's amazing. But it doesn't just mean that because reconciliation is more than forgiveness. Forgiveness says, you have wronged me, but I will forgive you, I will let you go, so now you can go. That's what forgiveness is. Reconciliation is, you can come. You get to draw near, and that's what Jesus has accomplished for us. That although we were enemies of God and cut off from forever learning or ever earning our way back into relationship with him, Jesus steps into the mess of our lives and he brings us back. And how does he do it? He says, by his body, through his death. This means that although this is the farthest thing from what we deserve from him, Jesus comes and he lives a life we can never live and he dies the death that we deserve to die. The eternal son of God gives his life in our place so that we might be brought back into right relationship with God the Father. So that we can live our lives, not just for him, a list of do's and don'ts, but to reconcile us to live a life with him. Cultivating actual relationship with the God of the universe. Listen to the way Paul says this in chapter two of Colossians. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You know what that word all means? All. And that changes everything. This is not like um, someone paid for your coffee. You ever had that happen? You've been in line at Starbucks or something and someone ahead of you pays for your coffee. Earlier, I, I, used, I said that at eight o'clock, someone goes, no. I was like, I'm so sorry. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Um, no, when that happens, how, how do you respond? You go, wow. That's so nice. And then you just go about your day. 
Because you got in line and you ordered that coffee, you were gonna pay for it. You had the, hopefully you're not making life decisions at Starbucks. Are my kids gonna eat or are we gonna get this latte, right? You're gonna pay for it. And so you just go about your day, but this is not like that. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against you. It's not like someone paid for your coffee. This is like you're drowning in credit card debt. You got medical bills so large that you don't even wanna open them. Uh, debtors continuing to call, your car isn't even worth as much as, or you owe more than you can sell it for, and you can't even make enough money to pay for your mortgage. You're crushed. No way to climb out from underneath the mountain of debt that you owe, and someone shows up and goes, paid for. Now, how do you respond to that? You don't just go, wow, that's nice. Why? Because your life's changed forever. Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against you by nailing it to the cross. Paul says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh. It says, why? Verse 22 says, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. This is talking about the day where we will all stand before a holy God and give an account for our lives. And that could be a terrifying thought, right? Only the Bible just said, if you're a Christian, you're gonna stand before God and give an account for your life, but Jesus is gonna go with you. And he's gonna present you to God the Father, how? Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Jesus meets you where you are to make you into who God wants you to be. Here's the thing, most of us know this, it's not new information, but somehow we've grown numb to it. Somehow we've grown numb to the the truth of the gospel, that we've been invited, despite the fact it's the farthest thing from what we deserve, and we go about our Christian life kinda like, wow, that's nice. And you show up here on Sunday morning, you go, hmm, Pretty good. And just like the coffee, you go about your day. No, no, this changes everything. Church, you were once alienated from relationship with God. You read your name into verse 21. And I was once alienated. When I was only capable of wickedness, I had absolutely no shot of ever earning my way back, but God didn't leave me there. I'm, I'm, on this, I'm on the lake shore just trying to figure something out in my life and Jesus sees me and he moves towards me and he's invited me in. He gives me a new identity to belong to him as a son because God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive with Christ. I've shared this quote with you before. I want to read it again. It's from a guy named Brennan Manning. It says, if you took the love of all the best mothers and fathers who have lived in the course of human history, and you took all their goodness and kindness and patience and fidelity and wisdom and tenderness and strength and love and you united all of those qualities into a single person, that person's love would only be a faint shadow of the furious love and mercy in the heart of God the Father addressed to you and me at this moment. Not because we deserve it but because of Jesus. Church, the promise of a new identity from Christ offers far more than forgiveness of sins. The offer of the gospel for you and me this morning is reconciliation. It's nearness, it's an actual relationship with him as sons and daughters. This is what the Christian life is supposed to be. It's what life is supposed to be. It's what it was designed for, not life for God. A list of do's and don'ts. Follow the rules. I'm a Christian, so I do these things. I'm a Christian, so I don't do these things. No, I'm a Christian, and I was alienated from God, but now forever, because of the work of Christ on my behalf, I get to enjoy my life with God. And it is from that place of life with God that we then begin to live our life for God. Because there's a day coming where we're not gonna struggle with sin anymore. 
There's a day coming where I'm not going to have to fight against the, the lie and the accusation from the enemy and remember the truth that I belong to God as a son. There's a day coming where Revelation 21 says Jesus himself will return and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. That day is coming, but right now, as Christians, you and me, are, all of us are somewhere between hostile and holy. We're not yet who we were. Or sorry, we're not still who we were, but we're not yet who we will be. The gospel meets us where, where we are to make us into who God wants us to be. And, and we have a role and responsibility to play in that. This is why discipleship is not just following Jesus. It's following Jesus. Invitation and identity and being changed by him. And living on mission with him. And we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. I want you to see one more thing here and then we'll be done. Colossians 1 verse 23. He says, you were once alienated, he's now reconciled you, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. This word continue, it means to stay or to remain. Other places in the Bible, it's translated to abide, to abide. So he says, you've been reconciled, you were once alienated, you've been reconciled, but here's the if, if you abide. Right, I mentioned that, because when Jesus talks about discipleship in the Bible, he doesn't give us a definition. He gives us an image. And the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested and ultimately crucified and then he dies on the cross for our sins, he's with his closest followers in the upper room and he leaves there and he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane and they walk through likely a vineyard. And in John 15 verse five, Jesus says this to his disciples. I am the vine, you are the branches, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you were to walk out of your house into the yard and you see a branch that had fallen from a tree and it's laying on the ground, what do you know to be true about that branch for certain? It's dead. And right after it falls, it's dying. The leaves that are on there, even if they're still green, they will be brown. The, the thing is dying. It has no life, no potential to bear fruit, no future. And yet, what does that same branch have before it falls? Everything it needs for life and fruit-bearing potential. And this is what Christ has invited us into. All of this comes from a source, and the roots are God himself. And so let me just ask you, why do we try so hard to live the Christian life for God, but not with him? And the enemy sneaks in when our life is that branch on the ground. And he goes, you're fine here. You're fine here. And he convinces us that we're okay. Tell you what, why don't we just prop you up a little bit? Leave you here. And we can surround you with these achievements and the approval of other people and you'll be fine here. All the while we're dying. And we think over here that we got to do enough to look at God and go, look at how fruitful I am so that I can be back in. He goes, no, no, the only way to be fruitful is to abide. If we want to live a life for God, if we want to follow Jesus, you have to live your life with him, cultivating nearness with God. Following Jesus starts with an invitation to come in and a promise of a new identity. It's a, it's a life, not just for God, but with him and church you have been invited in by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Father, I'm thankful 
that it's not up to us to do enough or to be enough to earn your love and approval, that Christ has done everything that we need to be welcomed in. And I pray this for the folks in this room, God, that you would help us to believe it. It's hard. I pray against the lie of the enemy, God, when we hear it, would you encourage us, remind us that our lives are hidden with Christ and God. The lives that we live now, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.